Hello, I'm Jack DeRose, CEO and founder of Colony. And I'm Aaron Fisher, recovering mathematician and co-author of the Colony White Paper. And this is Collectively Intelligent, the podcast in which we hope that if we talk to smart people for long enough, we might eventually say something intelligent. Hey, Trey. Nice to get to have this conversation with you. Glad to be here. So we've done a little introduction of you before we've started this conversation, but perhaps you can introduce yourself, tell you, tell everybody what you've been doing. At, yeah. Sure. I'm a, a tracheopteryx, which is early, the first, one of the first feathered dinosaurs. And I joined Yearn in the DeFi summer as a small child dinosaur. And uh, I just got called in basically by the magnificence of what was happening where, you know, somebody who I didn't, I'd been involved in crypto in different ways since 2010, really, but not seriously. And I was, I saw what Andre did by minting all the YC and giving them all away. And it just blew me away. And I, I just had to be part of it. I saw, you know, I'd always been really DAOs had been one of my core interests and, and previously to working in DeFi. I ran a number of businesses and I was always trying to push the boundaries on organizational design and self-management, teal organization and things like this. And so I've been waiting for DAOs to, to work and I saw what was happening with Wi-Fi and I thought, well, I want to, I need to be part of this. And I just started helping, just started contributing. Is there something specific about Wi-Fi that appeals to the reptilian brain? Yeah, definitely. The dinosaurs are really shrewd. And they're excellent judges of character. And, and most people don't know this. Andre really demonstrated t uh, a tremendous amount of integrity to me in a space where so often it's all number go up and all let's make some money. He was really showing princ principled position. He was very clear and that he loved to write code. He wanted to make, since he didn't want, did not want to run it, he didn't care about making a ton of money from it. He wanted, he gave them the, it away so people could do to, could govern it and form a community around something. And I just thought that was really awesome. So what did your first contributions look like? How did you go about digging in? I just, yeah, I always, the, the idea that you just do, you don't wait for approval. You don't ask for somebody to tell you what to do. You just make the role that you want in the world and you manifest reality as you go. And I, I think I've always lived by that. I, my main rule, I've, I've quit a lot of things and changed a lot of careers many times. My, my rule is just what's interesting to me and just go do that. And so I just started contributing however I could. I was supposed to be writing a book at the time and I stopped doing that and just was spending 12 hours a day in DeFi world, just educating myself and contributing to Yearn. So one of the first things I did was try and think through how you would do a Bancor strategy back when the first Bancor V2 was launching. And I started talking to Milky Klim at that time and then I... But very quickly, I saw the, the thing I really wanted to help with was organization stuff, because here was a, an organization that was, it was like a, it was like the big bang. It was a single particle of Andre exploded in the inflaton field of Wi-Fi distribution. And then you have this giant heterogeneous network of people that have just appeared, all these different particles coming to try and do something. And there was no overall organizing logic. It was just a mass of people 
trying to collaborate, which is the perfect case study for thinking about self-management. So I, at first I was like, all right, I know how to do this. Like we should do X, Y, and Z processes, but I didn't do that. And I didn't say that because I also was very aware that you don't want to apply, you don't want to apply what you think is best to this big emerging system. You like, let it emerge and do its own thing. But I was weighing in on things like, how do you make decisions? How do you, how do, how should we organize? You know, how should we, should we for, I suggest we form special interest groups and you know, people were talking about how to do coin votes and what types of things should we be working on it? Just kind of weigh in on things like that, different ways. It's one of the first ways that I started contributing. That's really interesting. Did you, was there any expectation of compensation or indeed was there compensation at this time? There was no compensation and I had no expectation of compensation. I was really in the press, like I was working on it as long as it was interesting. I was luckily in a place where I didn't need compensation. My personal finances were enough so that I could follow my passions. And I don't know, had there been no compensation, maybe I wouldn't have stuck around as long as I did. But I remember, you know, this was, I was starting to contribute pretty seriously end of July through August. And then towards the end of August, after I'd been pretty seriously contributing, they, we decided to start doing grants or, or somebody decided to give me a grant. I think it was Clement Bantag. And it, I remember at the time saying, I think Substrate was part of that too, saying, I'm not here for the money, but the grant really helps. It helps me feel better about spending all this time and effort on a project, knowing that I'm, you know, being rewarded and valued. What? Yeah, I think this was like one of the common, um, beliefs is that sort of extrinsic rewards can undermine intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Do you think that would have been the case? Do you think, or I suppose putting it differently, do you, do you think the extended amount of time that you had to put in for the love of the game at the, the beginning is what really sucked you in? And if you'd started to get paid immediately off the bat, you would have been like less attractive or not? I think there is truth to the incentive conflict that can happen with financial remuneration and, but it, it's, I don't think it's as simple as that. I think there is a way that it could have been done such that it put me off. If the people involved that I was working with were more motivated by money and they felt that money was a more important lever. And we're using that to try and coerce some type of deliverable from me, I would have been turned off and I probably wouldn't have joined, but everyone at Yearn was, still is sweetly, you know, naive in some way. I wouldn't, I don't know if it's naive, but I'm certainly naive around a lot of these things sometimes just open and generous with money. And, and, and it's not a, it's generally not something we push on and to light somebody's dopamine up and, and get them to do our bidding. We, don't do that really at all. So I guess to answer your question a little bit better, money right from the start wouldn't have been a problem if it was done in the open-hearted way that it's done now at your, for the most part. But mm. had it been some type of hierarchical corporate value extraction machine using money to create wage slaves, then no. Okay. From what, what you guys are building at Yearn, there seems to be a lot of activity and lots of stuff going on, but what is, what do you see as like the core pro product, the core value proposition of this project? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's two ways that I look at it that I flip back and forth between in a wave particle situation. Yearn is a yield machine, right? That is the kind of fundamental 
nature of our software products. They are autonomous smart contracts that create yield and then they share it out to the depositors and then to the team and strategists. And there's other pieces too that other things that fit around that and other partnerships that are strictly yield generating products, but that is the kind of core of your product offering. But the other side of the coin, I think, is that urine is, it's, when I was talking to some friends the other day about this, it's a mindset, state of mind, although that's a bit too vague and squishy to be useful here. Let's say it's more like a, uh, a community. It's a, it's a group of collaborators bound together by some type of, it's not just yield. Like I, I'm not interested in finances, actually. I, I never have really been that interested in finance. But when I saw that finance is actually blood of a intersubjective life form, then I became interested in finance. And, but what draws me to yearn is more the spirit of the endeavor and the beyond just working in these new ways, these new open self-managed ways, but also trying to upset the status quo to create a, another foundation for human coordination, another collective fiction and, and associated structures to allow for humans to collaborate and to love each other and not kill each other, uh, which is a lot of what DeFi is trying to do, I think. When I first dreamed up Colony back in whenever it was, 2015 or something, an organization like Yearn is exactly what I'd imagined would be starting to happen in the future. I could just see all of the pieces coming together that would make it possible for a bunch of people to just start to coordinate around a common goal and for there to be some underlying asset that is akin to equity, but not exactly akin to equity in that organization. And so seeing the emergence of, of Yearn was just a huge validation of that because I think it's yeah. one of the, one of the few really truly sort of emergent organizations that have come about in the crypto space or in, in most spaces really in that it never started out as a startup in the traditional sense. And really that's the way all other teams or not all, but most other teams have come about. Do you think that there's something different about that? What would you say is the, the competitive advantage? So compared to other DeFi projects? Yeah, I think. So it really has a lot to do with trust in a way. and I would say not necessarily trusting each other, but trusting the unknown. So I've experienced a lot of startup culture and a lot of different corporate structures and people really want to control things. They want to have a perfect plan and they want to have your legal documents all in a row. And I, I have my, my, my P and L's and I understand how everything's working and I'm in charge and here are my direct reports. One thing I've, I guess I've learned pretty well in my life is that the mind is really, is a wonderful tool, but it's also quite limited. And there's a lot more wisdom that comes between minds. There's a lot more wisdom that comes from the body and from the world. And just from the present moment, expanding in this, in this infinite way that is impossible to capture within the mind. And we also get so attached to specific outcomes, uh, which are so limiting. They're so unimaginative. So I think the thing that happened at urine 
was that it was really open to the unknown. It wasn't, Andre wasn't trying, I don't want to put words in his mouth. He wasn't trying to create this corporate beast. He was just giving of his skills to the world and asking others to come and do the same, which is a kind of mystical thing, really. And, and that spirit has brought us together. There is, you get a lot of downside with that too. There's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of miscommunication and uncertainty. But what happens and what's so different and what is a competitive advantage is that it allows for this wisdom, this kind of post-human extra individual wisdom to appear and work through. I know that sounds a bit woo-woo. I can, there's plenty of scientific and psychological ways to talk about it, but there is a power to the collective when you have a specific, a kind of an open and permissionless kind of structure and aligning kind of wisdom behind it. Can you talk a bit about how that sort of manifests within the community? Yeah, we, whereas a lot of decentralized projects have started centralized and then tried to progressively decentralize, which is amazing. And there's some great successes there. Yearn started in an extreme decentralized state. And, and so there's been tension through that process to try and try and grow structures. And the temp, most of the structural templates out there are command and control templates. And we have, I think, consciously and purposely issued those templates in favor of more open, permissionless, decentralized structures. And that's part of the reason we've developed this new constrained delegation model of, of governance and why there is nobody in charge. You know, there still is nobody in charge. Like there are people that have more, let's say natural authority than others. And there are people that have specific decision-making powers. But there is no owner, there's no boss, there is no executive team. And that is all that could have manifested. People have talked about it. People have said, you needs a CEO or something like that. And we've consciously avoided that, I think in large part, because we believe that there's a better, there's a better alternative available now. And this YIP 61, this governance proposal, I'm assuming this would be specifically like targeting this narrative, trying to grow governance structures. Because you need more structure. Otherwise, we all know about the tyranny of structurelessness and shadow networks and that always develop when humans interact. So you want to grow organically structures that can support this radically decentralized self-governance of the collective. I'm guessing that's where this YIP 61 comes in, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think in that you talk about progressive decentralization as well. So. Would it be fair to say that it started off in a state of absolute uh, decentralization? And then there has been a, a need to create greater structures, as you've mentioned, in order to more effectively uh, harness the creativity of, of yeah. people. And you've been doing so with the tools that are available right now. And so what's quite interesting to me, at least, is that while I think Yen is the most Taoish organization there is right now, it doesn't actually use any tools that would <laughs> really be called a Tao in and of themselves. Rather, it's an assemblage of several different tools, notably Snapshot and, and Gnosis Safes, that allow you to actually form a very sophisticated and rather agile organization. Yeah. And the other tool is Telegram. We, yeah. Telegram is actually a pretty good DAO tool because 
We, if you look at the, right, we started in this decentralized way. And I think Aaron made a good point, which is that there are, there's always these shadow networks and there's all, and which actually makes them sound insidious when they're not. It's now people talk, people develop relationships, people develop trust and there's psychological safety in certain groups, certain lines within a network. And then there's newness and novelty and fear in others. These are all fine, normal, emergent properties of any network of human beings. Often people from the outside of these, or even from within can look at that and believe that there's some conspiracy going on. Uh, conspiracies can emerge too, but I really like the, the MRI reading of it, the most respectful interpretation. And that's often true is that people are being sincere and doing their best. And that's one of the, one of the foundational beliefs I think within urine is that everybody that's there is acting in the best interest of urine and is trustworthy. But now this is particularly different from thinking about the environment a blockchain lives in, where you have to really consider an adversarial network of all different types of actors with different incentives. And people often mistakenly try to apply that same framework and logic to the internal internals of a team and try to create perfect trustless systems for friends to interact. That doesn't make any sense because trust is real. <laughs> and that human beings are trustworthy. And anybody that's worked on a creative team knows this. So we have tried to create structures that support these trusted relationships. And in YIP 61, in our governance 2.0 framework, the idea is to foreground those trusted relationships so that they're visible and they can become modular uh, components that wifey holders can make reasonable decisions about. So these are these packetized discrete decision-making powers in the Y teams that can hold them. How, how do you think about the distinction between the decision-making powers to be held by the, the wifey holders versus the decision-making powers that are held by those charged with operational responsibility, which is the multi-signatories? Yeah. So I think the first, the quick answer is that they're the same, that all decision-making powers can be seen uh, as the same object, same type of object. But then when you look closely, it's interesting because the general consensus, like if you look at these emergent organizations through a kind of postmodernist approach where every voice needs to be heard and democracy is the most important thing, but you have a kind of a one size fits all approach where every decision must be handled the same way by everybody weighing in. And we know that this is actually a pretty inefficient way of, of, of doing things. And there's many better ways to look at it. And, and the, the first thing that kind of tips you off to that is if you, if you carefully look at the different types of decisions that any organization needs to make, and there's all different types. And if you start to align them by their different axes of affinity, there's time scale is one important metric or impact. So is this a decision that's going to impact one person or is it going to impact every wife you holder? Is it something that needs to be made as quickly as possible? For instance, we're under attack by some hacker, or is it something that could take a month. Like we want to admit more wifey. That's something that we could do. It doesn't have to happen soon. It could happen over months. And there's a number of these different axes. And then you start to see that there are really very different types of decisions. And some are suited for wifey holder vote. And some are more suited for a small group working quickly. Um, but we don't have to decide that is the beautiful thing of the, the governance 2.0 model is that each decision making power is a discrete object like make wifey or pay the team. And these powers can be switched. You know, wifey holders can keep them or a specific empowered team 
can keep it. Uh, and then we can, that allows for the whole system to grow and it allows for tensions to drive decisions rather than some type of speculative riddle framework. There's a lot of general principles here and a lot of what you say is true, but also a lot of what you say is really hard to achieve. It's great to talk about assigning a certain question to the right decision-making group or assigning it the right speed or it's, it's none of these things are automatic and it's, we can always iterate this discussion by, by talking about how to decide on the decision-making protocol and how to decide on how to decide that and so on. You, you keep repeating the same, these same questions at every scale. And while you've said some admirable, uh, you know, qualities that the end system should have, I don't know how to achieve that. One thing is nice to say you want to have that. It's not guaranteed that just because you can delegate your voice and various decisions that this is the end result you're going to get. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I think that actually it's a profound statement is that no one of us actually does know that. We don't know the answer. I, I can't say exactly who should have what decision-making powers. I can't say, I can't orchestrate and control the whole system. I think that's this kind of principle of tension-driven structure, just like in biology, you know, the surface tension of water, the membranes of cells, and it's these tensions that drive structural development. What's this? As long as it stays balanced, right? Yeah, as long as it stays balanced. And, but when you trust the, the, the people and you trust the system to a certain extent, you can, things can fail and mistakes can happen and you can learn from them and create structures to do it better the next time, which is a bit of how, now I'm not saying we've solved all these problems or I'm not saying it'll definitely work, but, um, I think it's pretty promising. If you look at how the decision-making processes within urine have evolved thus far, rather than try and look out and create a perfect system that we then start to operate, the decisions and the structures have emerged from present and clear tensions within a group of people actually trying to achieve, which is one of the things I think is another really important thing, like to create a DAO or a tool in the abstract is a lot harder than when you're doing it on the ground, working on real problems every day. It's also hard when you're on the ground working on real problems every day because it's hard to find the time, but they go well together. Yeah, they, they, they say that wisdom is something that emerges from making a lot of mistakes that don't kill you. And yeah. um, it seems like the process that Jan has gone through to arrive at your current governance structure is something like that. It's that collective wisdom that you were talking about earlier on in the conversation. And in a way it's, it's, it's the low IQ, high IQ thing. So like uh -huh. from the high IQ level is yes, it's this mystical thing that we're all like, we know how to let go from the low IQ way, which is really how most of us are operating a lot of the time. It's man, I just want to fucking make this piece of code. I wanted, I don't have time to figure this thing out because we're all doers. We're all trying to do things. We need this type of a system. Otherwise we can't. And I think the really interesting thing about the model that you've come to here is that it is derived from direct actual experience of running yeah. a maximally decentralized organization, which I think is something that sits in stark contrast to really everybody else, especially DAO frameworks, probably like Colony and the other guys who have been working on this in a theoretical bubble, really. So, but whereas the approach that you've got is from direct practical experience. So all of the decisions that 
you've been able to make in designing this, you can actually look at the problems that you've experienced and see how the solutions are likely to solve them and where the problems yeah. are like lie. Yeah. And, and it's very real and present and, and scary too. So like to that kind of point, so we created this governance 2.0 framework and, and it passed with huge success, 99.997, you know, we got a percent. You must've been annoyed for, by the 0.03%. Yeah. I think I know it's who rude, it was. Right. I think I know who it was. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. <laughs> exactly. If you're listening to this, I know. But uh, yeah, I was, anno- I was annoyed by that. So it's great. So many people, like it was got so much good feedback, like just incredible amount of good feedback. And it's like, okay, great. Now this is going to work perfectly. But now I'm like one of the, one of the small teams I'm on, we have to figure out like the initial draft of who are the different signers on these different teams. So who is actually going to have the decision-making process power. And that's going to be, it's a collaborative process. So it's not a top-down process, like nothing at your is, but we have to take the first step to share a draft for people to give feedback to. And as I'm looking at this, doing this draft, it's pretty scary. Because mm-hmm. the power has been, urine is working quite well. We do quite well. And the power has fallen into these natural servants, really, of people that serve the other people. And so now there's a bit of a disruption that has to happen. You say, okay, actually the way that compensation is going to get decided is by the why people team. And there's five signers and here they are. And right now, the most of the people that work on compensation is the ops team, like the ops team that I'm on, we, we make, we, we take a lot of the decisions and we have been a lot of my motivation is to get, give away this power naturally falls into certain people in any group. And so you have to work to share it a bit and beyond just power roles are sticky in any small group. If you put 10 people together and they have a common uh, goal, one person is going to become the leader. One person is going to become the joker. One person is going to be the, the quiet genius. One person is going to be the facilitator. One per- there are common roles in any group and they, that emerge. And if you're in a group with a stronger natural leader and you're used to being the leader normally, then that person's going to be the leader. Maybe you'll become the choker. Um, but if you are in the leader role and somebody else wants to be the leader, you have to, even if you're not doing anything, it's hard for somebody else to take that role from you. Just human social psychology. You have to actively give up. And so that's part mm-hmm. of what we're trying to do is give up these roles, be, not because of any like high-minded savior mentality it's just damn effective it's just more effective to have those that this type of of fungibility and liquidity to decision-making powers Mm. it allows for the group mind to be much more high intelligence contrary right to the common perception of what a decentralized organization actually looks like i think that there is a, a number of there are a number of misconceptions around DAOs and what they're likely to uh, end up being, but one of the most pervasive and I think damaging is that it should be ideally democratic. In fact, what people mean is plutocratic, but this Mm. principle that either you can create, (laughs) you, you can effectively say people are fungible because you're basing it, you're basing their influence on a fungible token, but also that just a homogenous mass of people trying to take decisions collectively is going to be the most effective way of operating just seems straightforwardly ridiculous to anybody that's ever really worked in an organization. Yeah. People also confuse decentralized with unstructured. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And so then I think that another one of the really common misconceptions is that a decentralized organization, that the decentralized part of that means maximally open, that it should be as permissive and open to new admission as possible. Yeah. Anybody should be able to contribute in any way that they choose. Has that been your experience of, yeah? Yeah, I think so, actually. So there's a, there's a few th different pieces in there, but um, one of the things we strive for at Yearn and we keep, we hold very high in regard culturally is initiative, taking initiative and being a place where anybody can contribute and that there aren't going to be roadblocks to them. And we have try and have the minimal amount of gated processes so that people can make decisions and take decisions on their own. And actually this can, there's a bit of a tangent maybe, but we just implemented. So after governance 2.0, you know, what, which, what that does is it formalizes a system, a framework for, for controlling and on-chain gated decisions, but mm -hmm. that's only one type of decision making. There's also mm -hmm. on-chain ungated decisions, and then there's off-chain gated decisions and off-chain ungated decisions. So like an off-chain gated decision would be like merging a pull request on a GitHub repo. That's off-chain, but you need the specific administrator privileges to do it. Then there are off-chain ungated decisions, like deciding what you're going to write into a chat room. There's so many different types of decisions. And so we just formalized a, a, a couple processes, which come from teal organizations. One is the advice process and one is the conflict resolution process. The advice process basically says that anybody on the team can make any decision that they want, as long as they, as long as it's not gated and they use the advice process. And the advice process is just, you say, here's the decision I want to make, give me your advice. You, to the people that will impact, you hear their advice, and then you can make whatever decision you want. Mm. You don't have to follow their advice. And if there's conflict that arises, you use the conflict resolution process. So I think in saying that I was primarily thinking of that Yearn's telegram channels started mm. out being completely public. Yeah. And over time there was a tendency towards closing some of those off and making them by invitation and anybody else can invite people, but that there was a problem that came about as a result of all of the channels being entirely open, which is, I I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but my assessment of it was that it was as an observation that I've made of online groups is that the people with the loudest voices are not necessarily the, but those with the most to say. Yeah. <laughs> Often they're inversely correlated. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So how was that decision taken and what has been the difference between you having a permissive organization, which is easy to enter, but which is not all comers being able to moonboy their way in? I think so much of the time I look to biology for, for, you know, inspiration and for understanding around stuff like this. And not every cell in the human body is exposed to the air, but then heat dissipation and, and nutrient circulation are, are important things. In the urine organism, there was no decision made that we're going to have public and private groups. It's emergent. People can make their own telegram groups and that's what started happening. And when I first started at urine, there was like a discord that was very public and there was a, a public telegram group that almost nobody, no real work happened on. And then there was like one or two private work groups on, on telegram. And then as more, as work, as more people started contributing and naturally working together, they would create their own groups. 
And, and these were often private groups just by nature of the fact that when you create a Telegram group, you might not want to make it public because you're, you want to have a private conversation, which is absolutely legitimate. But then you get problems on the other side is if you're private too much in the time, then the, the information doesn't sync enough and people start to get out of sync with each other and tensions arise and conflicts arise. And so then you start to be self-motivated to share information in order to synchronize across different groups. And you get to, so a lot of people in tele, on Discord or on the forum would get mad and say, hey, we don't know what's going on. We're wifey holders. We demand to, to know what's going on. And others in nicer, more thoughtful ways. But they raise a very good point, which is mm -hmm. that information transparency is really important. But you know, often when people think about this stuff, they see it in such black and white. And it's really, a, it's a gradient. More than a gradient, it's a rainforest. There is every type of life form. There is every shape and weather pattern and terrain and your privacy and openness. It's not just two things, right? You need this whole multidimensional space for the different types of information to flourish. Yeah. There is always a desire, it seems, for circumstances to be viewed digitally where in fact they're analog. Yeah. Well, fear compresses reality into black and white often and, right. and the unknown creates a lot of fear. Absolutely. But so do financial incentives, right? They can really screw things up that while the project is beginning out yeah. and everything's fun and dandy, that's fine. But once a real amount of money becomes involved, you start getting all kinds of actors yeah. with very specific, highly one-sided in incentives, um, that is going to put any governance system to a test. Yeah. And have sure. you noticed I that think, um, since the prices of all these things have been going up and down crazily, have you noticed an effect that that once it becomes successful, it's harder to continue in the spirit of cooperation? I would say very minimal. I think we're very lucky at Yearn that we have such a strong culture. Uh, and the people that gravitate into Yearn and get hired, it all happens extremely organically. And it's very clear. People show up and they just start working on stuff. And you'd think that after we did the Mint and, um, and we add a lot more money to play with, we, there would just be this glut of people trying to get paid and it really hasn't felt that way. I think maybe there's been a little bit, actually, I don't even, that's not even true. I don't even think there has been an uptick in people wanting to contribute. I think it's actually pretty crazy now that I say it. It's almost none of that. Almost everybody that comes into urine's orbit is really sincere and authentic and trying to work and sure, maybe they're excited by the money, but it's not just the money driving. I'm excited by the money. I like money. That's mm -hmm. not, there's nothing wrong with that. So I'm not saying it's black and it's, it's one or the other, but for the most part, we have pretty sincere and dedicated people that are here to do cool things, to change the world and money. The way Yen or is organized, you mentioned that it's very autonomous and self-directed mm -hmm. and that that comes with a lot of chaos as well. And, and I think that it seems self-evident that a chaotic organization is one that produces a lot of heat in addition to the, the motion that it generates as a sort of byproduct. Do you think that's obviously Yen is also a very wealthy organization. Do you think that wealth as an organization is a requirement in order to operate an organization of this type? If you were more resource constrained within the lean startup mindset. Do you think it would be possible? Interesting question. I haven't thought of that before. I don't know. I don't know. I, my initial thought is that 
it doesn't matter, that it's not essential to have a high amount of financial fluidity. But then, um, but I think there does need to actually be a strong value exchange within the system of some sort. And if it's not fungible currency, it might need to be something else. I'm not sure. What do you think? I suppose the interesting thing in Ian's case is that there actually wasn't any money to begin with. Yeah. The, the, a, a whole bunch of money turned up, but to yeah. begin with, it was, there was nothing. Um, yeah. It I, was that act of, of the organization starting to operate in the way that it's operated is what has generated all the value. That's, that's a good point. And, but at the beginning, we knew where we were. We knew we were in hmm. DeFi. We knew we were on a hot project. We knew that there's a yeah. good chance that there'd be money flowing through it. And I wonder if that potential energy was an essential ingredient. So maybe you don't need the, the, the currency in the bank, but you need that potential energy. Which is really like anybody choosing to join at the beginning of a high risk startup. Yeah. Actually, it makes sense because if you decontextualize it a bit, you think of it not as money, but you think of it as, um, as creation, creative power, creative force. Mm. Like that's why we do these things. And in some case, and there are some mechanisms that allow you to convert creative energy into financial energy, but, but is the act of creation itself that is in, inseparable from creating. I know you've got a hard stop in just a few minutes, but it yeah. would be, it would be rude not to touch on uh, a recent neighbor of yours, which is coordinate, which oh, yeah. I've found to be a really fascinating project because I think that one of the, the real challenges the decentralized organizations face is this challenge of, of of compensating people for work without it being relentlessly transactional, without you having to account for absolutely every hour spent, every piece of work that's done. And in a traditional organization that can, that generally works through salaries, it's, it's, if the cost of doing all of this additional coordination work is so great that it's, it's a pain to do it via the open market, you hire people. Hiring people in the context of yen works. Obviously there are some people who are salaried, but when you have got a more open set of contributors, coordinate seems like a very interesting approach to being able to take away a big part of that transactional, the process that is such a bummer to actually doing the work that you care about. Yeah. It really is. And this is another example of really of attention driven solution, right? So like we, we were in the position, me and a few other people of trying to give people money. And from the beginning, when money was flowing into yearn, we wanted to share with the community. And so we started doing these community grants and, uh, and we really put some of these as gifts. Are there a lot of, if you look at a lot of the other grant programs, it's like, what are you doing for us? And like, how much is it worth? And here's your carefully constructed amount. We were, what we were doing was a little different. It was like, wow, this guy's awesome. Let's give him money. Let's mm. give this woman money. She's doing great work and with no strings attached. And so every month we would look around and be like, who's doing cool stuff? Like how much money do we spend this month? Okay. Let's give this person 3000, this person 2000. And it was great. In the beginning, it was great. People were really resonating. And, but actually there's a lot of research which shows that to this idea of financial incentives actually being a disincentive to, to creative work, that if you give money to people as an incentive, like here's a bonus, what you actually end up doing is you're pricing their soul. 
And people don't like their spirit to be priced. It's not priceable and, and it's extremely depressing. But if instead of doing that, this is not related, like, we just think you're good. Here is an amount, an arbitrary amount of money, just like a kind of jackpot. That's actually cool. People like that. And it doesn't disincentivize the same way. There's some good research on this. I was, so we were doing that. And yeah, no, I, was think, I was just thinking of something like this because I'd read some years ago, actually, that when you're trying to incentivize certain types of work, and I think it was research and creative work then mm. the best compensation for that person is just enough money that they no longer need to worry about it. Right? There's a sweet spot. And if you start paying them more and giving bonuses, yeah. the quality of the work degrades. Right? And it's research and creative yeah. work has this sort of sweet spot where you don't want people starving where they're constantly worrying about income, but you also don't want to have this hyper-competitive bonuses everywhere. That is also very distracting and counterproductive. So yeah, no strings attached grant of a certain type can be, you know, yeah. optimal for certain kinds of work, not for all, but definitely for some. Yeah. And so we found this to be pretty good, but then we quickly found that we weren't very good at it and not that we're actually about as good as probably people can be at it, but just people on their own aren't that good at it. It's too hard to know. And it is too hard to do in a top down way because there was like four of us figuring this stuff out. And then we'd ask another 10 people and they'd give us ideas, but really there was a hundred people contributing. And one of the ideas behind self-management is that the people doing the actual work act often know the best. And, and this is the idea of often like of open salaries. Like you tell me what you should get paid. You actually know better than I do. And we try to implement a lot of that at Yearn. And so coordinate really came from that. We're like, we can't, it's inefficient and ineffective us doing these grants every month. Let's let the people that are receiving the grants decide how much they get. And so we actually, you know, there's actually quite some interesting ways to do that. One of Coordinate's co-founders, Zach Anderson, he used to do this process called Thunderdome in one of his companies where whenever money came in from a project, they would just sit around a table and they'd have a discussion and then they would just give it to each other, basically. And somebody would say, well, you know what? I did a lot of work on this. I should get more than you. And somebody else would be like, oh, you're right. You did. You should. And they would just have an open sharing conversation that split up all the money. And so we implemented a version of that based in the ideas from gift economies, where it's about giving. So each person in the group, so first you create a group and then coordinate if you do this through NFTs, then, and, you know, it, it's a certain number of people that have member badges to the Yuri community circle need to agree to create a new badge for a new person. So even acceptance into the group is decentralized. And then. Within that group, every month, uh, there's a, a monthly uh, budget that's decided by a budget team that's given away to the community. And every month, all the members of that group get 100 give tokens, which are non-fungible, non-transferable tokens. They're just used for this gift process. And you give them to the other people in the circle that have done good work. And then at the end of that epic, you count it all up and you divide the monthly grant by the number of give tokens received, and then you allocate the grants budget that way. It's a bit of a novel uh, computational social choice method that works quite well for asymmetric allocations. Were you to try and do this with a normal coin voting system, you would have to do it in a serial or sequential way. But here you can do it in a parallel way and allow everybody to make their own allocations like a parallelized raked voting or something. So how many cycles of this have you worked through so far? This has been going for a few months, right? Yeah, so we've done three epochs at Yearn, 
and we've done of the community circle. And I think we've done two epics of the strategist circle, which is the year and strategists decided to use coordinate to share some of the fees that they receive from their strategies, which actually is really interesting in a much longer, we can talk about it maybe another time, but, um, just because strategists are supposed to be the most eat what you kill mercenaries, but even they at year and turn out to want to give to each other. <laughs> and share yes. and it's beautiful and, and then at sushi we're starting a circle and cream we're starting a circle and gitcoin and a few other partners are all just now rolling out the first what's the what, what have you observed of the behavior of the people actually using it but it's interesting anything surprising yeah the thing that's really surprising the, the thing that really surprised me and then later makes so much sense is that the numbers don't matter as much in this mm -hmm. system. And what I mean by that is when we were deciding, when it was a top-down process, how much you got mattered because it was a kind of stamp of approval from a boss or something. Even though it's not where we were, it feels like that. When it's the whole group deciding together, you're in it together. You're a part of the decision. You have agency in it. And so if your friend gets 4,000, you get 1,000, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter as much. And so people are much happier. It seems that people are much happier with the equitability of the split, even if it doesn't match my own belief around who's creating the most value. So I was surprised when I looked at some of these allocations, I was like, whoa, this person's getting this, this person's getting, that doesn't make any sense. But nobody cared. <laughs> Everyone was happy. I guess because that was not somebody else's interpretation of the situation or perhaps several yeah. people's interpretation. Yeah. And you mentioned before, like the challenges of all the different, uh, personality types that you get within organizations of there being like the quiet genius or the sort of perhaps loudmouth, less genius, although that's <laughs> a binary that's not necessarily true. How have you seen those kind of dynamics play out? The, is the quiet genius always destined? The quiet, I, I call it the quiet genius problem in the case of coordinate because it, it is actually not fully solved yet because there, there is a social component to these systems. And so we did notice like there was a one person wasn't very social, but was doing really awesome, smart contract work. And he reached out to me and said, I don't think I'm going to be rewarded properly for my work in this environment. And he, and he was right. And so we ended up uh, hiring him. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess coordinate doesn't solve all the problems. And mm. I think there's going to need to be, we actually have a lot of ideas for for ways to address this with different forms of signaling and social signaling, because, you know, on, on the one level you have the, the general social consensus mechanism, but then there can be other things you can do on top of that too. A few people might be able to decide, Hey, this is a new guy. He's not getting enough love. Let's give him a special sword for this round, gamify mm -hmm. it a little bit. And then just by having that cool sword, people are going to give him more give tokens. So there's right. interesting, there's interesting things we can build onto it. They were working because it, it, it marks them yeah. out as somebody worth paying yeah. special attention to. So for the right. quiet genius but, problem, but, you don't need the whole group to know their contributions. You just need a few people in the right position to be able to give them something special. Right. I see. But your perception so far has been that I suppose for the middle part of the mm. bell curve kind of works pretty well. Works pretty well for the middle people. Yeah. That's it, awesome. We actually haven't had any. It's worked surprisingly, I'm going to say shockingly well so far. I'm sure there's going to be places where it fails and we'll figure it out. But so far it seems to work for the whole bell curve. Very cool. I think we've 
used up all of your time at this point. So thank you very much for coming to talk to us. This has been really cool. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, really honored to be invited and so much fun to talk about this stuff. Yeah, it's anytime. been great to meet you. Thanks for this. Yeah, absolutely. You too. There's lots more for us to explore in the future. Great. All right. Thank you for listening to the Collectively Intelligent Podcast. We'd greatly appreciate a review in your favorite podcast player. And if you want to stay in the loop even further, follow us on Twitter at Join Colony. Thanks again.